God, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, as you grab a seat, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 3. This is going to be the last uh, week here in our Proverbs series where we're kind of laying the foundation and then starting next week uh, with Kurt Huber. Uh, We're going to jump into what will be more thematic or topical looks at various uh, issues, various topics throughout the book of Proverbs. And so... What we do this morning will be the last of three messages where we're laying the foundation for how it is that kind of the lens that we're looking through as we look to the rest of Proverbs. And so let me just give a quick flyover of where we've been up to this point. We started in chapter one and kind of the central verse of Proverbs chapter one is that uh, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that that fear, that humble reverence and awe before the Lord, that is where we begin to gain wisdom. That rather than live and learn, we can learn and live, and that that learning, lesson number one, is to be humble and reverent before the Lord. In chapter two, we saw, especially in the first four verses of chapter two, that we're to be diligent in our pursuit of wisdom, diligent in our pursuit of our relationship with wisdom, uh, that rather than kind of mixing and matching from various sources in order to build like a wisdom plate, we, got a, we have a singular focus, and that singular focus is on the Lord. And then this week, what we're going to see is how is it that we actually rely upon wisdom? And the big sort of overarching reality here as we look at the book of Proverbs is that wisdom all throughout Proverbs is positioned as a relationship that you can have rather than just information that you can gain. And so how is it that we rely on that relationship? How is it that we rely on wisdom? We rely on the Lord. That's where we're headed this morning. The world says when it comes to this that really you can only trust yourself. You want something done, especially if you want it done right, do it yourself. The only person who who is ever going to truly look out for you and your interests is yourself. The only person that you can ultimately bank on is you. You are the only one that you can fully and absolutely trust. That's what the world says. The Lord, on the other hand, says, you need only to trust me. Let's read the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. My son, don't forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days, a full life, and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Let's talk Big structures first. I heard a father in front of me on the father disciplines his son go, hmm. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Let's talk big structures first. Verse one, 
This isn't the first time that this phrase has been used, but I want to really call our attention to it. At the very beginning of Proverbs chapter 3, remember Solomon is talking to his son, Solomon the author. That's what's positioned in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And he says, my son. It's, that's relational. In fact, it's more than relational. It's actually covenant language. That's what we get, especially what we're going to see here in Proverbs chapter 3. You can think of Proverbs in this sort of way. You've got some issue going on in your life. You've got some struggle that you're trying to work with and you get yourself into the presence of the Lord and you pour out that struggle. And it's as if Jesus is sitting there with you, listening intently, asking some probing questions, offering some thoughts, and then with all the gentleness and love that he possesses, he kind of leans forward in his chair and he looks at you and he says... My son, let me make you some promises. That's what's happening here. The king is speaking to his children. These verses, especially the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3 here, and then we're going to carry this with us forward into the thematic things that we look at. These are not transactional verses. You do this thing, the Lord will do this thing. These are relational verses. The Lord says, out of a covenant relationship, my son, my daughter, my child, let me make you some promises. A covenant in the Bible is an oath-bound relationship between two parties. The closest thing we have to that in our society today is marriage, or maybe you could think of like contracts that professional athletes or something sign. But marriage is the best sort of illustration that you stood at an altar somewhere before friends and family and ultimately before the Lord and you made some promises to one another and you committed those promises by an oath to one another and you established a covenant between you and your spouse. That's the closest thing we have in our society to this sort of oath-bound relationship. Both parties make commitments And in the event that those commitments are not kept, there are both natural, but then there could also be imposed sort of ramifications or consequences. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous covenants between God and humanity. In the Old Testament, what we call the Old Covenant, all of God's covenant promises that he makes flow out of the initial promise he makes to Adam and Eve after they sin in the garden. That covenant of grace was a promise that Adam, the coming, or that a promise to Adam, excuse me, that through the coming seed of a woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. God is going to do that. It is a promise. He makes that promise right there in the garden before Adam and Eve have to leave after they've sinned. That is covenant promise number one. The rest of the Bible is going to fulfill that because here's one thing you can bank on when it comes to the Lord and our oath-bound relationship with Him. He will absolutely fulfill His part. Guaranteed, you can bank on it. When we step into covenant relationship with the Lord, if a party is going to fail, it's not going to be Him. So that first covenant is there in the garden and then all the further covenants in the Old Testament made with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David clarify and build on that initial promise. 
There are conditions attached to those. God's going to uphold his end. He will fulfill every covenant promise that he has ever made. He's bound by an oath to do so. But even without the oath, his character, his word, his promises, they won't fail. That's who he is. And there are consequences if we don't uphold our end. And then you get to the New Testament and there's this new covenant. And God has made an oath-bound promise to us, which he's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now all that place their faith in his work on the cross will most certainly be saved by his grace. Just scan down the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3 here. You can take all 12 verses and break them into six two-verse couplets. All the odd-numbered verses, verse 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11, state what is our end of the covenant obligation. Verses 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, the even-numbered verses, are, are God's promise in that covenant. And it just bounces back and forth the whole way down. Another way to look at this passage would be to look at it almost like an hourglass. Verses 5 and 6 being kind of the middle point of that hourglass. Everything up above, 1 through 4, filters down to there. Everything after that, verses 7 through 12, flow out from 5 and 6. So if we're going to really understand this, we need to just work really hard to wrap our minds around verses 5 and 6. Like I said earlier, these are some of the most famous, popular, well-known verses in the book of Proverbs. We've heard them so many times that we can just kind of spout them off often without actually thinking about what's being said. So what is our side in verses 5 and 6 of the covenant that we enter into with the Lord? Well, our covenant obligation is to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not to rely on our own understanding. At the risk of being, uh, like, beating a dead horse here, we're going to deep dive into the sentence there in, chapter, in verse 5 of Proverbs 3. Pretty much word by word. Trust. The word is batua in Hebrew. It literally means... Throw yourself upon the Lord. All of who you are. Just toss it upon the Lord. All of your mass, all of your being, if you want to think of it in physical terms, you take all of the weight of who you are and you just thrust it upon the Lord. That's what that word trust means. Trust in the Lord with all, so all of you. Your heart. The Hebrew word there for heart is lev. It's actually spelled L-E-B. All of your inner being, which means all of your inclinations, all of your dispositions, all of your determination, all of your courage, all of your will, all of your intentions, all of your attention, all of your consideration, all of your reasoning. Throw all of that upon the Lord. In a recent... On a recent vacation, um, I went bungee jumping. And there's no way to halfway bungee jump. <laughs> you can't walk out onto the little platform on the bridge or wherever it is that you're doing that 
and decide that you're going to partway bungee jump. You're either going to throw all of your mass off of the bridge and rely entirely upon that rope, or you're not going to jump off the bridge. Those are the only two options. It's total trust or no trust. That's the very nature by which bungee jumping works. All of who you are, none of who you are. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. and Do not rely on your own understanding. All of who you are upon the Lord or something lesser. Those are the options there. In all your ways, a lot of your translations there in front of you probably say acknowledge him. Verse 6, that's the most common way that we memorize the verse. The word for acknowledge is actually to know. Not know like in a factual sense, but to know in a relational sense. In all your ways, know him. There's our side. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. In the Midwest, we, we have this thing that we do when we're driving, especially if you're uh, out like on a country road or something and it's not super highly traveled and you come across another car and rather than take your whole hand off the steering wheel to wave, you just give them the, like one finger. If you're feeling real exuberant, you might go two fingers. That's acknowledging. I just recognize your presence. How are you? We crossed paths. Think of it in another way. Oftentimes, uh, you're, you're walking somewhere, and whether you know the person or maybe they're just kind of an acquaintance or you pass by somebody, you'll just give them like the little head hello. Hey. Acknowledging. That's acknowledging. Okay, so read back up at the start of verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Can you give one finger waves to the Lord and think that you're trusting in Him with all of your heart? Hey, God, I see you. No. If you're going to trust in the Lord entirely, trust Him with all of your heart, then you're also going to have to trust in the Lord exhaustively. In all of your ways, know Him. In every situation, Know him, not in a factual sense, in a relational sense. That's what it is to be gospel-centered. When we talk about devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, here's what it is. Know him in everything that you do. Relate with him in every scenario. Don't merely passively acknowledge that he's over there or he's somehow involved, but know him. Bring him into the situation relationally, intimately. Know him. Don't one finger wave him like you would the stranger on a gravel road somewhere. These covenant promises that we're going to look at here in Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 flow out of this sort of trust that you throw all of who you are, all of your being upon the Lord You trust in Him completely, and you know Him in all of your ways. The kind of person that receives these covenant promises from the Lord trusts God that sort of way.
They cast all of themselves upon Him. They trust with all of their heart. They know Him in all things. And so we have to ask the question here this morning. Do you know God that sort of way? Have you trusted in the Lord that way? You're here on a Sunday morning and you think to yourself, that's got to be enough. You can come in here every Sunday morning and just kind of give God the old, like, chin hello. Give Him the one finger wave. At some point in your life, you kind of said, okay, God, I think you're probably there. That's incredibly different than a person who says, I'm throwing everything upon the Lord. All of my hope, all of my desires, all of my delight, all of my joy. I'm going to cast all my difficulties, all of who I am, all my intentions, all my attention, all my decisions, all my circumstances upon the Lord. And I I say this carefully, but also purposefully. I don't think the person who one finger waves at God is going to be welcomed into his arms at the end of all things. I think the person who's going to enter into the joy of the Lord's eternal rest is the person who thrust everything upon him. Where do you fall? Have you trusted in the Lord entirely? That's what faith is. To have faith in who Jesus Christ is and his work upon the cross and the goodness of God's grace in saving us is to say, I have no other choice but to throw all of my weight onto him. There's no halfway option. You can't partway bungee jump. You can't partway trust in the Lord with all of your heart. If you have done that, the logical question is, do you live like you do? You can't trust in the Lord in a Proverbs 3 verse 5 sort of way and not have it completely color the way that you live. When was the last time you took a risk to obey the Lord, where it really required your trust? When was the last time your life looked so obviously different than the lives of those who don't know Jesus? When was the last time that happened in your pursuit of holiness, that you saw a commandment from the Lord or you knew a commandment from the Lord and you said to yourself, you know what, I'm going to obey that even though it's going to make me look entirely different than the people around me and they're going to think it's weird and they're not going to understand, but I'm going to do it anyway because I trust him completely. When was the last time you took a risk in your unity with the body of Christ? You pursued reconciliation with someone even though the world would have understood if you just held a grudge. When was the last time you pursued unity with the body of Christ by taking a risk in service or in volunteering? When was the last time you took a risk in that sort of way in terms of vulnerability or transparency or getting into a small group, maybe gave of your finances? 
When was the last time you trusted the Lord in this sort of way in your mission-driven sharing of the gospel? Or in your disciple-making relationships? To use the verbiage of Tim Keller, if this truth, Proverbs 3, verse 5, is active in your life, then the differences in the way your life looks from the way the world looks should be explosively obvious. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out in case God fails. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it's either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood upon the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then in the second part of verse 6, we get his covenant promise. He will make your paths straight. Proverbs is inviting us into a relationship. And that relationship is one of total trust. Faith, trust is the key to obedience and faithfulness in our covenant relationship with the Lord. Radical confidence is the means by which you uphold your end of the bargain and with certainty see him uphold his side. And that promise is a straight path. A straight path to himself. A straight path that leads through the cross straight to the throne in heaven. A straight path that sees a straight line from the Savior on the cross to the Lord of the universe ruling and reigning. That straight path with that kind of trust is the path to eternal joy and covenant bliss in relationship with God. That's what you get. And whether you know it or not, that is what your heart longs for. Maybe you're more of a one-finger wave at the Lord sort of person this morning. You think that this kind of trust would mean you've got to give up what you think your heart actually longs for, some relationship, money, some sort of status. What your heart actually longs for is a straight path back to your Creator. And you can have it if you trust in Him completely. He will make that path straight for you. I want to zoom out and look at the rest of these. The rest of the couplets, 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 7 and 8, 9 and 10, 11 and 12. And as we do that, I want to make two important clarifications. The human heart wants to make these transactional, especially verses 9 and 10. Oh, if I just honor the Lord with my possessions and with the first produce of my entire harvest, He'll make my barns completely full. We want that sort of transactional thing. That's why the prosperity gospel is sort of like elusively intriguing to us. The prosperity gospel says that you can live your best life now. Prosperity gospel says that if you just have enough trust, enough faith, then you will be blessed. And if you send $100 to the number on the screen, you'll definitely be blessed. That's what the prosperity gospel says. And that that blessing will include ease in life, comfort in life, financial gain in life, material blessings in life. But that's not biblical. There's actually nothing biblical to support it. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it under-promises. 
You read the whole of the Bible and you think that it's about ease in life, comfort in life, material gain in life, financial blessing in life. That is a wild underpromise because what the Lord actually has is a covenant promise that says you can live your best life forever. That is a way bigger promise than send $100 to the number on screen and the Lord will return it to you tenfold or something like that. One important clarification to make before we jump into these verses is that they are not transactional. And that if you try to make them transactional, you're actually belittling the Lord's promises because he has so much more for you than a prosperity gospel sort of thinking. Here's the other clarification. As we go through Proverbs, both these verses and as we go forward, Proverbs are generally true and can be trusted in our earthly lives. As it relates to here on earth, these statements, the wisdom of Proverbs, are generally true. If you live this particular way, this thing will happen. But they're ultimately true in eternity. They're rock-solid guarantees in the scope of eternity. God's covenant promises have been sealed up for us by Jesus Christ, and we can trust that each and every one of them is absolutely going to come true. But they're going to come true in the long arc of eternity, not necessarily in the short arc of your earthly life. Not necessarily in the minuscule instance of your current moment. We can be covenant-keeping people because we know that God is a covenant-keeping God. He has displayed that in Christ and he will absolutely come through on his side to borrow the words that we just sang. We've seen him move and we can believe and know and trust that he will do that again. The path will be straight. And so what are those straight paths? What do they generally lead to in life? What do they definitely lead to in eternity? This is also going to function as the way we apply verse five and six. So let's just run through them all. Verses one and two, my son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commands for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. A commitment to the commands of God is the straight path to the good life, if you will. Many days of full life, well-being. You set your heart on, the com on those commands of the Lord because you understand that there's an order built into the created world. And when we live in that order, we flourish as God intended humanity to flourish. What's the promise? You get a full life, well-being. There's the straight path. You trust completely that the commands of the Lord are good, that they're given for our good. You can trust that there will be a good life for you, well-being a fullness of days. Verses three and four. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. If you have a loyalty to the desires of God, that's the straight path to an esteemed life. Favor with God and people. When we have a Proverbs 3, verse 5 kind of trust, we're loyal to the things that the Lord desires. We're faithful to His will and His purposes. We bind them around our neck, write them on the tablets of our heart. 
Jeremiah 31, 33 says that the Lord will write his law upon the hearts of his people. It's a promise. He will do that. And what will we get in return? Esteem. Esteem with God. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But we get esteem with people here in our life. In Acts, the early church, we're told, enjoys the favor of all the people. Their hearts have been changed. The Lord's law is written upon their hearts. And they trust in him. And they live out of that trust and out of that new heart. And the world notices and holds them in high regard, esteems them. Jump down to verses 7 and 8. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. A turning to the wisdom of God is the straight path to a strong life. The call here is to reject being wise in our own eyes. We cast off the illusion that we have all the answers. That doesn't mean that we don't think or we don't plan or we don't attempt to put strategies into our lives to live well. We just acknowledge that if we were left to our own sinful, broken devices, there's no hope that we would do any of that well. Instead, we turn to the Lord's wisdom, beginning in fear, walking in diligence, trusting Him entirely. That is wisdom. In His end of the bargain, He will strengthen us. We've looked at a a lot of words here, but humor me by looking at one more. That word strengthening, the word actually means to take a drink. It means to quench your thirst. Literally, if you reject being wise in your own eyes and you turn to the Lord's wisdom, He will satisfy you in a way that water satisfies a thirsty person. That's the kind of strengthening you get. He promises it. It's a covenant promise from the Lord. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. An investment in the things of God is the straight path to the rich life. We'll talk about finances specifically later in the series, but here is the picture. You invest in the things of God and you'll have more to invest in the things of God. You'll have a life that's not slave to your bank account or to your things. One that's free from the concern about how much you have and how you can get more. Because now you're concerned about how to use what you have in partnership with the Lord's purposes. Everything you have truly becomes on loan from Him. That is the rich life that the Lord promises. And your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. It may be that you're a person who looks around and says, I'm pretty wealthy. And that might be objectively true. But what happens as we invest in the things of the Lord is that it becomes subjectively true. We see we've got so much that we could give, that we could leverage on behalf of the Lord. That's the rich life. Verses 11 and 12. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. Do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as the Father disciplines the Son in whom he delights. A joyful perseverance under the discipline of God is the straight path to the Son's life. Sometimes that discipline looks like a difficult reckoning with our existing sin. Sometimes that discipline looks like dealing with the consequences of our sin. Sometimes that discipline looks like a challenging season in life. 
Sometimes that discipline looks like waiting longer than we hoped. Sometimes it looks like never receiving the thing we thought we wanted because the Lord knows that it's not the thing we actually needed. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs says, you can trust me. I discipline the ones I love because I want them to be prepared. Parents, this is the act of parenting. Your goal is to raise a child who one day will not be a child, but will be able to walk out into the world as an adult. And so at times you've got to discipline them while they're young so that they'll be prepared for something more in the future. That's parenting. The Lord is preparing for us, are preparing us for an eternity with him. And his discipline is a sign that he loves us enough to want us to be ready. And so he disciplines us. And a joyful perseverance under the discipline of God is the straight path to the son's life. The father disciplined the son. On our behalf, Jesus Christ went to the cross. And if we're going to be sons, we're going to have to trust Proverbs 3, 5, in the same way that the Son trusted. And we do so joyfully and we persevere in that. I want to speak to those of you who might be in a season right now where you feel like you're under the discipline of the Lord and you say, Tim, it's a lot easier to talk about joyful perseverance under God's discipline when you're not actually in the season of discipline. I completely understand that. The last 18 months or so, of my own personal life was an intense depiction of that. That to actually put Proverbs 3 verse 5 into practice in the midst of the Lord's discipline and not loathe that discipline is a difficult, difficult task. But I don't know if you actually, Proverbs 3 verse 5, sort of trust the Lord. If it doesn't filter its way all the way down to verses 11 and 12. It doesn't mean that you've got to smile your way through the discipline. It doesn't mean that the discipline season has to be your favorite season in life, but it means that you trust the Lord with all of your heart in the middle of it. That he's got a purpose and a plan. That he's disciplining the one that he loves. Run back through these with me. Because what's so beautiful about this passage is the truth that Jesus has fulfilled our end of all of these covenant responsibilities perfectly. Proverbs 3, verse 1. He kept the commands in every single way, and now we can be absolutely certain that the good life awaits us. The good, eternal life awaits us. That is a promise that will absolutely, rock-solid guarantee, be true for us in eternity. We can be certain of it. Proverbs 3, verse 3. We can be absolutely certain that it was Jesus's, the Son's, absolute delight 
to be loyal and faithful to the will of the Father. And because of that, we can be certain that when we stand before the Lord at our moment of judgment, we will be esteemed because the Son is esteemed. Not because our life was so wonderful, but because Jesus' life was absolutely perfect. You want to be esteemed in that moment. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. He will make your path a straight line to that moment. Verse seven, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil and it will be strengthening for your bones, healing for your body. The son turned away from evil at every possible point. He was not wise in his own eyes. He feared the Lord. He had a reverence and an awe for his father and what the father willed. And because of that, we can be absolutely certain that our lives in the here and now will be strengthened by the presence of the Holy Spirit and we can be absolutely certain that we'll get a glorified body one day that is not subject to the presence of sin and we'll spend eternity glorifying the Lord in that body. You want a rich life? You can be absolutely certain that if you trust in the Lord with all of your heart, you don't lean on your own understanding, you acknowledge Him in all of your ways, you trust the Lord in that sort of way, there's a city with walls made of gold waiting for you. Gates of pearl. There's so much excess in abundance there, and it's a rock-solid guarantee that it will be yours. You want the Son's life? Verse 11 and 12. That life involves discipline now but glory later. It involves a cross on this earth, but a crown in eternity. If you've trusted in the Lord with all of your heart, then all of those promises are yours. He will absolutely uphold his end of the covenant bargain. Your trust is in the work of Jesus. These promises are yours covenant guarantees from the sovereign Lord of the universe who's bound himself by an oath to lowly human beings that he sealed with the blood of his son. And now we throw all of ourselves upon him and we trust him for all things, knowing that he will be perfectly faithful in the long arc of eternity. There's only one way into those promises and it's to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. All of who you are. But if you do that, you can be certain that not only are all the promises of Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 yours, but all the covenant promises in all of Scripture will absolutely be yours. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Throw all of yourself upon Him, and He will make your path straight. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and we'll go. God, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Son. Thank you that your promises still stand, that your faithfulness is great. God, thank you that we've seen you move in the way that you worked in Jesus Christ and we can be certain that you will do that again, God. We can trust you completely because you've not spared anything in order to bring us to yourself. God, I pray that if there are those in this room this morning who've never placed truly place their trust in you, God, would your spirit move powerfully in them this morning? Would they see that to trust in anything else is absolutely foolish, but to trust in you comes with 
absolutely ironclad promises, Lord, for this life and for eternity. And God, would they turn to you and trust you completely. Lord, for those of us who are walking in relationship with you, God, would we actually let that color the way that we live. Trust that your commands are good for us, that your will should be a delight for us. Trust you with our finances. Trust you in our disciplining, Lord. God, would it be explosively obvious in our lives that we trust in you completely? Would we know you in all of our ways, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week.